Let's say you're in your local grocery store, the Kroger, or in my part of Louisiana, the Rouse's, and you're browsing the aisles. All around you, in the deli section, the frozen foods aisle, the snacks and baked goods, there's the influence of something you probably have no idea about. What could it be? Here's a hint. You know, one of our last really big deployments, which was Operation Desert Storm, there were around 250,000 soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, and that's a lot of people to feed. You're listening to Gravy. 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 <laughs> Stories about the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today, what does the military have to do with that grocery store? We've got the story of one big influence on the processed foods that we eat here in the South and around the country. One that has changed my experience of the supermarket completely. So a few years ago, Anastasia Marks de Salcedo was making lunch for her kids. Anastasia is a journalist. She's done a bunch of writing about food. She has three daughters, one a teenager, the others in middle school. And so, like most moms, I do a lot of lunches. And when I do that, I usually try and find a balance between healthy and not-so-healthy but child-pleasing items. On the not-quite-so-healthy side, she might have an energy bar or some cheesy crackers. But to balance things out, she'd always make her kids a sandwich, too, from scratch. And then one day... Probably a little irritably, I was making a sandwich and I said, geez, and I started to get to thinking about the ingredients. And I realized that I'd pulled the packaged deli meat out of my fridge, that the bread came from my bread box and had been sitting there for a while and had been sitting in the supermarket and then it had been manufactured way back when. And Anastasia got to thinking, is this really a healthy lunch? The packaged deli meat, the store-bought sliced bread, the cheese... And with a journalist's curiosity, she started looking into it. I went through all of those ingredients that you just listed, including the, the uh, mustard <laughs> and the mayonnaise. And what I found, which just really puzzled me, was that in achieving shelf life for at least two of the items, the packaged deli meat and the supermarket bread, there was this reference to this obscure U.S. Army base, the Natick Soldier System Center. And I said to myself, whoa, this is very strange. What is the Army doing in, in food? What is the Army doing in food? Well, of course, they're feeding the troops. But how does that end up tying into Anastasia's packaged deli meat? To begin an answer, we have to go back to the earliest combat rations. Combat rations have existed since pretty much the beginning of armed conflict. <laughs> and the first combat rations were probably eaten by the Sumerians. They did carry with them into battle barley cakes, beer, and green onions. You know, just the essentials. Back in the early days of organized warfare, if you were marching into battle and didn't know when you'd get home again, you needed to bring something that would keep. All of these rations were based on uh, traditional methods of preserving food, drying, salting, uh, smoking, and pickling. The next real innovation was a preserved protein. Like dried fish, which the Egyptians went to war with. And then after that, quite a bit later, but the Mongols who had a real interesting method of preserving their food, which was to keep the meat between the saddle and the rider. 
with, and the salt from the horse would enter the meat. The pressure of the rider's weight would push the meat down, and that would actually create this preserved meat. So that, that, that's kind of... Salted by horse sweat and compressed by your butt on the saddle? Correct. <laughs> Mongolian methods aside, for some 2,000 years, Anastasia says, rations stayed pretty much the same. Flour, beans, a hunk of salted meat, and some hardtack, a kind of twice-baked biscuit. That's how it was until the French Revolutionary War. So after the French Revolutionary War, for one reason or another, the French government, and particularly the agricultural department, (laughs) decided that it needed to find a new way to preserve food. And so they put on a contest, 12,000 francs, to anyone who could come up with a new method. A guy named Nicolas Appert responded. He was the 19th century version of a celebrity chef cooking for kings and queens. For this contest, he figured out a way to cook and preserve food using glass and metal containers and boiling water. This is canning, and it revolutionized the world. It spread to surrounding countries. The first physical can was developed in England. These cans were very expensive to produce, and so the first customers were just the Navy. But, you know, as all uh, technological innovations do, they figured out ways to produce things more efficiently and with machines, and then they came down in price and entered the consumer market. This was the first time that the military really took the initiative in food technology. But in the U.S., a lot more was on the way. And the major turning point here was World War II. Going into it, rations were developed by a little three-person lab. So you had something which is called the D-ration, which was a deliberately unpalatable chocolate bar. And it was made <laughs> deliberately unpalatable so that the soldiers wouldn't eat it right away. It was intended to be eaten in emergencies. And unfortunately, the army found that, as most people will do when they had a nice little piece of chocolate in their pockets, they ate it right away. Outside of the untasty chocolate bar, there were canned rations, which also weren't super popular and didn't survive well. And eventually there was a little pocket-sized pack of meat, cheese, crackers, some candy, and cigarettes. That was a hit. But the army still had a problem. During World War II, the country had to ramp up from feeding 400,000 soldiers to ultimately 11.6 million. None of these things were really sufficient to feed such a great number of troops in so many different locations and in so many different climates and conditions. So over the course of the war, the military bumped up the staff of that little three-person laboratory to 300 people. And then after the war... The government said, well, you know what? We don't ever want to have to go through this again. It was just horrible to have to ramp up to participate in this international war and in the food arena, you know, to have to feed all these soldiers. So let's maintain ourselves in a state of preparedness. And so preparedness became policy after World War II. And to support that, uh, there was a system of federal laboratories created, of which there are 700. And the Department of Defense has 80 of these laboratories. The Natick Soldier System Center is one of them. So this looks pretty much like suburbia, with the exception of the intense electric fence. 
The barbed wire fence and the guard posted at the gate are some of the few clues that what could otherwise be a suburban Boston office park is the epicenter of a good part of the modern military diet. This is the home of the Combat Feeding Directorate, which has been here since the 1950s. Usually what happens is that we have the perfect ration for the last war. We tend to wait until we have a a dire need and we develop something specifically for that need and it works really well, but we don't forecast what we might need for the, the next time around. Which is something they're working to change. Stephen Moody is the director of combat feeding here, which means forecasting the food needs of the future military is his domain. He has a tendency to nerd out about the science of food rations, though he also served as an active duty soldier for years, including time in Iraq. He leads me into a room they've dubbed the Warfighter Cafe. Warfighter Cafe? It's a catch-all term for members of the armed forces, they tell me. The Warfighter Cafe features a little display of all the rations Anastasia was talking about, from the chocolate bar to the cans and cigarettes, and what they've evolved into. What we've done is we've taken those hard cans and we've replaced them with flexible pouches, so it really is just a flexible can. Meet the first MRE, or Meal Ready to Eat which first got to the troops in 1980. The first MRE contained a lot of freeze-dried components, a freeze-dried meat patty that you would have to add water to and then heat it. And uh, having having eaten a few of those in my time as an active duty soldier, you had to get it just right. It was always either a little bit too soggy or a little bit crunchy at the end of the day. The development of that freeze-dried meat patty and that flexible pouch to replace the can gives you a clue as to what's been going on here at the Combat Feeding Directorate for the past six years, food engineering research. Ever since World War II, they've been tasked with overcoming certain challenges inherent in, well, food as we know it, i.e. food spoils over time, it grows mold, it loses flavor, and if you're trying to feed a vast number of people in climates ranging from the desert to the humid jungle over long periods of time, you have to figure out ways of making food that will avoid its natural tendency to go bad. So. They have whole teams of microbiologists, engineers, and other scientists focusing on different areas of that. Food engineering, preservation, and stabilization, for instance, would be the ones that uh, would would try to figure out how to make that product shelf-stable for two, three, five years. Five years. uh, Without refrigeration, exactly. Another crucial thing to making a combat ration that lasts for three-plus years? Packaging. So the, the things that cause food deterioration really are um, either microbial uh, bacteria that gets into the food or just the the chemical changes that happen over time and and the things that will drive the chemistry is moisture and oxygen that's the primary role of the packaging is to exclude those two things and then there's the little detail of the food tasting good the modern mre has come a long way from that chewy freeze-dried meat patty the u.s military now offers 24 different entrees from cheese tortellini to lemon pepper tuna to jambalaya. You know, the iconic Louisiana dish of rice, shrimp, and sausage. On the jambalaya, for instance, trying to make sure that jambalaya would would last for three years at 80 degrees in a pouch is a challenge. And the same recipe that might work in the kitchen at home and taste great, if you can that and, and let it sit on a shelf for a while, the flavor profile changes. So we, we tweak the spices, we tweak the ingredients so that we can make sure that the flavor is optimal at the end of the shelf life as well as the beginning. All of this has driven the Army to innovate, to find new ways to process food and preserve it and package it, 
so a soldier on a mountain in Afghanistan can enjoy a flexible pouch of jambalaya three years after it was made. And they've come up with some pretty amazing things. One of my favorites, tube foods. Tube foods are designed for uh, U-2 pilots. U-2 pilots doing reconnaissance missions are up on the edge of space, and they fly some 12 to 14 hours nonstop, and they're in pressurized suits, similar to the old astronaut suits that you would see, pressurized, and, and so they don't have an opportunity to eat. So the combat feeding directorate developed a tube that the pilot can just hook into their helmet near their mouth. Looks like a tube of toothpaste almost, and the food inside is ground up not quite to a baby food consistency. Although it's ground like that, it's, the flavor profiles are quite different. You've got a beef stew, you have an apple, <laughs> you have an apple pie, caffeinated chocolate pudding. You can suck up your apple pie through the tube. And, and, and it tastes really good. Everything from the truffle mac and cheese to the... Uh, truffle mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. So maybe that one seems like something the Jetsons might serve for dinner. But other innovations are aimed at making foods that seem more normal, except for the fact that they're built to last a really long time, like this sandwich. We actually took something like a Hot Pocket that you'd find in the, the freezer at the grocery store and made one that was shelf stable. And we did that by controlling the water activity and the, the pH of the different components within the product so that they wouldn't allow bacteria to grow. Water activity is a big deal in this sort of work. It's not just how much moisture is in something, it's how much water is available for a chemical reaction. So there might be water molecules in a product or a component, but they're bound up by things like sugar and salt. And if you can bind them, they're no longer available for either microbial growth or for chemistry to happen. And so you want to keep the water activity as low as possible. Which is why for centuries we've been salting food or adding sugar to it to preserve it. Anyway, back to that sandwich. They package it up with something called an oxygen scavenger that prevents oxygen from getting in. So mold wouldn't grow on the bread. And we, we designed hurdles to each step within the process that might allow spoilage to the point where we now have a sandwich that will last in a pouch for three years at room temperature. They call this hurdle technology. And it leads us to an item that warfighters have been requesting for the longest time, pizza. Pizza that is shelf-stable for three years. This is our pilot plant. I can smell something so, cooking uh, in oh here. Yeah. The room is like a massive industrial kitchen. Giant kettles, mixers, ovens. They do testing of new rations in-house. Just when I think I'm dreaming up the scent of tomato sauce, I see a worker in a lab coat and hairnet standing over a big pot, stirring vigorously. Oh, that's what I'm smelling. Mm -hmm. What, what's Hi. cooking? Hi, making some pizza sauce. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to be doing a run of shelf-stable pizza on Monday, so we're just uh, doing the, the sauce right now to... Uh, Putting it down to 0.89 water activity, so pretty low. So it's going to take some time just simmering. In another corner of the pilot plant, a different worker is slicing up a pizza topping that at first I thought I misheard. Did you call this osmoroni? You call it osmoroni. Osmotic pepperoni. Michelle Richardson is taking what looks like a roll of toilet paper made of meat, a thin sheet of beef rolled up with a layer of plastic preventing it from sticking to itself. It's preserved using osmotic dehydration. With this technology, there's no heat involved, which is really good because heat can actually destroy different vitamins and things like that. And the process is a lot quicker. The technology basically involves running thin sheets of meat through a special water bath that removes water from the meat itself, preserving it. 
Michelle gives me a little bit to try. Osmo Roni. I, I probably, if somebody had just served me that, I would not have even questioned what it was. No, no, you wouldn't. I mean, it's, it tastes like pepperoni. I would probably increase the amount of pepperoni flavor, but those are some of the things that we're working on. The Army is aiming to have that shelf-stable pizza in combat zones by 2017. So, what does Osmoroni have to do with your grocery store? It may end up there. And the reason why has to do with another part of the Combat Feeding Directorate's mission, dating all the way back to World War II. That's when the military decided it needed to create a backup plan to feed troops in the event of a sudden war. So it built into these new labs a requirement. Make partnerships with the commercial sector. What we try to do when we come up with a new technology is make sure that it's not military-specific so that there are commercial applications for it. And, and that can only help us with economies of scale. If something is military-unique and it's only produced for the U.S. military, the costs are going to be a lot higher than if it's produced for the commercial sector as well. Not only does it help with costs, but it also means that there are a lot of companies out there that already know the technology to make these combat rations, in case the military needs to ramp up quickly in a time of war. Technology transfer is a goal. That's what Anastasia Marx de Salcedo discovered when she started digging into the makings of that sandwich for her kids and ended up at the Natick Center. They said that to me. They said, if we, I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, if we do the science and develop stuff here and that's the end of it, we're not doing our jobs. We want it to get into the private sector. Coming up, a trip to the grocery store with Anastasia to discover the many food items that had their start in the Army labs. That's ahead. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey. There is that donor music. Modern-day advancements in food preservation, of course, are usually welcome news for soldiers in the field. A pizza meal sounds more exciting than hardtack, even if that pizza has been shelf-stable for three years. But let's face it, nothing beats fresh, hot food from a skillet. Lodge Manufacturing in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, has long been the premier manufacturer of cast-iron cookware. Now that October's finally here, Put your lodge cookware to use for a complete fall meal. Cornbread, beef stew, pineapple upside-down cake. Lodge not only makes the cookware you need, but it also has the recipes. You can pick up the Lodge Cast Iron Cookbook from your local independent bookseller and get inspired to cook that meal this week. Thank you. So, in your average grocery store, what evidence of the Army's influence is in the aisles? Anastasia Marx de Salcedo took all of her research, which started with her children's lunch, and wrote a book called Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat. 
and she and I are going to take you through those inventions chronologically in this grocery store, starting in the 1950s with cheese powder. Here we are right next to the motherload of cheese powder. Cheese powder in the mac and cheese, and then you would have it also in any cheesy snack foods that might be around. Your Cheetos and your boxed mac and cheese, here thanks to an army innovation post-World War II. We make a turn into the frozen foods aisle. We've got some TV dinners. Turkey tetrazzini and meatloaf and gravy and turkey pot pie. Well, the TV dinner came about to feed bomber troops on long overseas flights. It was developed by an army contractor, and pretty much the idea was to freeze the entree, the vegetables, and the dessert into a tray and then reheat the tray. Which prompted them to come up with what became the microwave. Yep, the microwave oven was a military innovation too. Also from the 1950s and 60s, freeze drying. That means instant coffee. The instant teas, instant soups, those little nibs that you get in cereal sometimes, all those are freeze-dried, and those came from Army research. An attempt at freeze-dried entrees was kind of a bust, though. Remember Stephen's not-so-fond recollections of that meat patty? But then, the Army hit upon a game-changer, what they call intermediate moisture foods. And what the technique is, is it uh, creates a food that has a reduced but not low water activity. And so if you can lower the water activity enough, you actually create an environment that's inhospitable for bacteria. Even though the food may appear moist, it is not a place that they can grow. The Army figured this out in pursuit of what became the first energy bar. So it's everywhere in the granola bar aisle and in the packaged cookie department. So soft and chewy at room temperature. One thing that cookie makers did is once they understood this scientifically, they started making the soft and chewy cookies. So that not, in the olden days, the cookies, supermarket cookies would be crisp. So cookies, pillowy sliced bread, chalk those up to the Army's development of intermediate moisture foods. Next, we scoot down a few aisles to the coolers of the meat department, where Anastasia hovers over a package of sliced, smoked ham. Very definitely here in the deli section, you're going to find some products that are made with a restructured meat. Restructured meat products. Sounds enticing, no? It was a cost-saving move, originally. The Natick Center said, you know what, we could take this and we could lower our meat bill by buying just the cheapest cuts and figuring out a way to like make them look like more expensive muscle cuts, which are your steaks and your pork chops and your so forth. They figured out a way to flake the meat so that it retained its juices. And then, along with Oscar Mayer, they discovered meat glue. It sounds a little more ominous than it actually is, but with meat glue, it's an exudate which comes out of the meat when you add, uh, I think it was phosphate and salt and some other chemicals, and then and you tumble the meat and it kind of oozes out. Then you can use it to restick the meat together in pieces and it will solidify. On a good number of aisles, Anastasia pauses and starts squeezing packages. She gets excited about one that's a Thai basil and sweet chili stir-fry sauce. We are. So okay. wait, what, what are you feeling I up am, here? Okay, the reason I feel it up is that to feel the packaging. This is a retort pouch, um, which was developed by the Natick Center. Remember those flexible pouches for the MREs that Stephen showed me? 
these are like those. They feel squishy and moist instead of dry inside. What this is, is a laminated foil and plastic pouch, which was developed during the 1960s by the Natick Center and several commercial collaborators, including Reynolds Wrap. And it's intended to replace the tin can because it's much uh, cheaper, safer, and easier to carry than a can. And this is what all MREs are now packaged in. Tuna and sauce packets, drinks are in retort packages now, and those squeezy applesauce and yogurts to go. Being in this supermarket has become like a scavenger hunt, scurrying around, feeling up packages, keeping our eyes out for soft baked goods. It could start to be a little bit haunting as you go grocery shopping. <laughs> the military everywhere. <laughs> it is, and I started to feel like I was walking around looking at ghosts of combat rations. That's receded a little bit now. I'm, they've quieted down, but uh, I do, I think about it when I'm with my kids because they do seem to prefer those foods. <laughs> It's not just Anastasia's kids. These food products are beloved and ubiquitous, from Cheetos to chewy granola bars. And as weird as Osmoroni and tube foods seem now, these military innovations have a tendency to get worked into our diets without anyone really even questioning, should this packaged cookie really still be so soft so many weeks after being made? I think people are already really used to this kind of convenience. Nobody questions anything. And I think most consumers, we say, hey, it comes in a package. The company um, says it's okay. I'm not going to worry about it. And we go for that. The complicating factor with all of this? We, the public, aren't war fighters who need our food to stay preserved for years at a time. Anastasia says with that as the priority, the products that the Army comes up with are more like preservation stability systems than food. And Ironically, even some of the troops themselves aren't so wild about the rations that have found their way into our collective diet. I mean, I, I don't know anybody that misses MREs. Nope, <laughs> the MREs have never, ever, ever gone like, oh man, you remember that time that we, other than the horrible things you could do with them, like outside of eating, like create bombs and stuff, it's not, it's not a great piece of equipment and or substance. It's, I don't have any fond memories. Louisiana native Ben Armstrong spent five years in the Marine Corps and he has visceral memories of his first MRE. But so it was uh, just like this gelatinous barbecue beef that had this pungent smell to it. And then like a wild rice, the crackers, which are these, these horrible pieces of cardboard. And then I think peanut butter. Don't even get him started on the jambalaya MRE. For a Louisianan. I would never try it. <laughs> I don't want it, to. It's, well, it's just sacrilege. Trying to simulate things that are fresh and familiar is ultimately a challenging game. So, if you happen to buy a shelf-stable pizza in your local supermarket a few years from now, and it seems a little unlike the pizza of old, be prepared. That pepperoni might actually be osmo -rumi. You can find a link to Anastasia Marx de Salcedo's book, Combat Ready Kitchen, How the U.S. Military Shapes the Way You Eat, that's on our website, southernfoodways.org slash gravy. Music for this episode was from Driftwood Soldier, Blue Dot Sessions, Ryan Little, Corey Gray, Michael Hurst, Josh Woodward, and Computer vs. Banjo for Diagram Collective. Our theme music is by Mr. Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to Sarah Camp Milam and to Gravy's intern, Dana Bialik. 
A little taste of the next episode of Gravy is just ahead, but first... So, in addition to this podcast, the Southern Foodways Alliance also publishes a Gravy Quarterly Journal. The new fall issue is just released. In it, you can enjoy poems by Sandra Beasley, articles by Gustavo Ariano and Hannah Raskin. You can take a trip with Emily Wallace to see the world's oldest country ham. There's also original photography and artwork in every issue. To subscribe, all you have to do is become a member. You can do that at southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, a little glass container that has been adopted by legions of fans and is irritating others. It kind of smacks as uh, a little bit classist when you see a bunch of upper middle class suburbanites and urbanites, you know, like playing tourist in rural American uh, culture. In pursuit of the cultural significance of mason jar mania. That's next time. You're listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war.